you know, for the last uh, year and almost a half, we were in what theme? Scarlet Thread, the theme of redemption from beginning to end. You can't get very far away from the theme of redemption in Scripture because we come back to it tonight. The message tonight's rescued from darkness. And, um, you know, as I think about it, it talks about being transferred. My dad was in the Army. Most of you know that. He was in the Army for a little over 20 years. And during that time, he was transferred 15 times. 20 years, 15 times. Now, not every one of those is what we call a PCS. What in the world's PCS? You know, the military's got a strange language. PCS, PCS is permanent change of station. That means that you pick up and you move from North Carolina to Texas, or you move from uh, Washington State to Korea or wherever. Uh, most of those were PCSs, uh, in fact, 13 of them. Two of them were not PCSs because he stayed where he was, but he did what? He changed his job. Well, those of you who are the regular members here know that I was in the Army for almost 30 years, 29 years, most of it in the reserves, but uh, six years I was on active duty, as Ken and some of you served on active duty too. And in that 29 years, I was transferred 15 times. Uh, And I moved locations for my job 14 of those times. Those were what you might call PCSs, but not really, because I didn't actually move my home. So while I was living in Fort Worth, for example, I served here in Fort Worth, but I also served in San Antonio and up in Oklahoma City and even went overseas. My point is... Uh, We lived a life of transfer, moving. And some things never changed, you know. Ken's probably got some of these. Maybe you do too. I still wear these. Dog tags. Dog tags, yeah. My dad probably wore something like that. He did, he did, John. And on on these dog tags, it has some pertinent information. By the way, I've been wearing these for 50 years now. Spivey, James T., that's who I am, right? That's my identity. I'm not going to say the numbers here because it's my social security number and we're live streaming and I don't want everybody to have that. But it used to have your regular army number on it, your uh, service member number. And then it says OPAS. What in the world is OPAS? Blood type, O positive. So if something happens to me on the battlefield and the medic comes up to take care of me, he knows not to give me a negative. That's right, okay. And then it says So Baptist. What is So Baptist? Southern Baptist. I am uh, Southern Baptist by birth, Christian by baptism and acceptance of Christ. Well, no, I wasn't Southern Baptist by birth. but So some things never changed. You know, I never changed my identity tag. I still have it. My name didn't change. My ID card stayed the same unless, you know, it uh, got destroyed. My allegiance remained the same, and my employer, I was employed by the Department of Defense the whole time. Sometimes I actually served with the Air Force. And my mission remain the same constantly. Something's never changed. And you know what the mission is, to defend the Constitution of the United States. But some things almost always changed. And a permanent change of station, the location almost always changed. You heard that sometimes it didn't. My assignments always changed. My dad's assignments always changed, even though our skill set was the same. My authority changed, depending on my rank 
as I moved up in rank. And as he moved up in rank, we had different scopes of authority. And my community changed. Uh, my commander, the unit that I served with, the relationships, some of which I still have today. You know, it's interesting, uh, changing jobs. We live in a society today where a lot of folks change jobs all the time. Millennials, it is said, change their jobs three times as much as the older generations. So we moved into an era where people don't stay with the same corporation, the same company, or the same uh, uh, business most of their career. You know, gone are the days when a person stayed with a company 30 years. We're in a transferring society. You know, when I look at my church experience, and I don't want this all to be about me, but it, it kind of gives you a little more context. I've been a pastor of 10 churches. The first one was in England, and then I've been interim pastor at eight, eight other churches before coming here. But every time I was at the church, I was the pastor. I didn't just come in and preach and leave. I, I was the pastor there. And some things never changed. My identity didn't change. What's your identity? My identity in Christ. It never changed. God's child, that never changes, does it? My allegiance never changed. My allegiance was, first of all, to Christ, the kingdom of what? Fill in the blank. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of, Matthew puts it, what? Heaven. My allegiance is to him. Now, secondarily, I was sort of teasing, but in a halfway serious Part of my identity is I'm Baptist. There are certain beliefs that I have that, I, that come from Scripture that make part of my identity a Baptist believer. That has not changed. My mission never changed. My mission, Matthew 28, 19, 20, is to do what? Make disciples. My authority never has changed. Whatever church I've gone into, I've been a part of the member, a member of the priesthood of believers, and I've been given a responsibility in that to be a shepherd, but also externally to be a what? Second Corinthians 5. To be a what for Christ? An ambassador for Christ. But some things almost always change. Whenever I would move from church to church, the location obviously would change. Different building, sometimes often a different city. My assignment and task would change based on the goals of that church. We have how many goals here? Six goals. Very definitively, we have gone through and prayed about asking God, what do we do in this community? And those are different kind of goals in different churches, although the mission is the same. And my community would change. I still get calls from friends at other churches in different communities, and the relationships were slightly different. Just think about that in your life as you move around and have moved from place to place. Some of you have grown up in Fort Worth, stayed here all your life. Some of you have been members of this church for longer than other members have been alive. Some things for you haven't changed, but for many of us, our jobs change, locations change, uh, we, we transfer, and that has some bearing on the uh, text tonight. So let me introduce, because uh, it's a short enough text and we've been in it for a month, I want to kind of go back over it very quickly by way of background for verses number 13 and 14. 
Remember, we began by talking about faithful Christian saints in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, if you want to read with me in in Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. From that we saw that we are set apart, holy saints, so that we might be obedient, that is, faithful, and to grow in holiness. And in the next message, we looked at verses 3 through 8. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, Also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And in that we saw that there were three things to be thankful for. Remember what Chris said. And they're the same things that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Be thankful for the faith that we have in Christ, the love that we have for all the saints, and the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And the source of all these things in this passage was the word of truth, which is the gospel. Where does it come from? In this passage, it says, from the grace of God. And it was given to them by whom? Who communicated it to them? Who was the fellow that helped to start the Colossian church that took them the gospel? Epaphras. And the results of this... It's not just to hold on to it, it's to do something. Constantly bearing and increasing in fruit and faithfully abiding in that truth. And then Elias last week talked to us about walking worthy of the Lord in verses 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His gracious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified, that is, equipped us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. I'm not sure I'll have to go back and take a look at that, but I think that may be just about... One sentence. There may be a couple there. What What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about his praying for them. Why does he pray for them? And then the rest of the passage, almost all of it, is about what he prays for. That they will be filled. Be filled with what? With the knowledge of his will. With all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this will help them to walk worthy in a manner that is worthy of the, the Lord. To reach a goal. And remember what Elias focused on. He said, what is the goal? And he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Our goal is to do what? To please the Lord. And in so doing, what do we do? How do we please Him? We bear fruit of good works. We increase in our knowledge of Him. And it's not just head knowledge, but also our relational knowledge of Him. And we then are strengthened by His might. Strengthened by his might so that we might be steadfast and patient and we might always joyfully give thanks. And finally, so that we might share the inheritance with 
With whom? What does he close with? With whom do we share that inheritance? See, he comes back to this idea of being saints, faithful saints. But now he puts it in a different context. The saints of what? The saints of light. So that's a perfect background for discussing what we're going to talk about tonight. You heard the last hymn. You know, every time we sing that song, Jonathan, I think, I don't see many songs that have the word articulate in it. But we need to do that. We need to be articulate with the gospel, don't we? We do. We need clearly to proclaim it. And so in this passage tonight, that's the background for verses 13 and 14, and especially the last verse, verse number 12. You see, Paul's thankfulness this is the second time he's talked about being thankful. At the beginning, he talked about it in verse number 3. We give thanks to God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then he talks about praying for them in verses 9 through 12, and he comes back then to the point about being thankful. And it lays a platform for verses 13 and 14. Paul's thankfulness extends to verses 13 and 14. You see, he's thankful for what we discover in verses 13 and 14, how the Father has done this. You know that word, he has, look at verse 12, who had, the Father has qualified us. What does that mean? It means that we have been equipped. We, he has given, it, given us what it takes to have that inheritance. And in verses 13 and 14, then he explains how the Father accomplished that. So you see there's a connection between 12 and 13, 14. There's a connection between 12, 13, and 14 in the community identity. Both Paul and the Colossians, and we, he says, share in something. We are saints of light. And as we sang in the last song, that means that he has bridged the gap and he has called us out of what? Darkness and delight. And he talks about that, that in this passage then. And then finally, verse 12 connects with 13 and 14 by way of background, because there then he talks about the source of that inheritance. The inheritance spoken about in verse 12. The source of that inheritance is the Son's redemption and forgiveness of our sins, and he explains it. So let's get to the text tonight. Verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're rescued from darkness, number one. Secondly, we're transferred to the kingdom. And we'll come back to that idea about being transferred, okay? And then finally, what? We have redemption, the forgiveness of Christ. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Think about this for a moment. What about the Colossians' previous state? Now, most of them were not Jews. Some of them were, but most of them were Gentiles. We were talking about the term a moment ago. I used the term when I was talking to uh, James and Abigail, who are visiting tonight. I mentioned something about being pagan, and that's a term that we use for what? In that day, there were, there were two kinds of people. There were Jews, and there were Gentiles. And as the church grew, then sometimes some of the Jews became Christians, some of the Gentiles became Christians, and then you have three groups of people. You've got the Jews, and you've got the Gentiles that are Christians. So who are the others? They're pagans. They're pagans that worship pagan gods, like Dionysius and Zeus and the Roman and the Greek pantheon. They lived in that kind of world, in Colossae. What was it like? Well, it's described in... Turn over to chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. 
That tells you what it's like. Chapter 3, 5 through 9. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, the greed, uh, greed which amounts to idolatry. He goes through this catalog of sins in verse number 5. He talks a little bit more about that, and then he picks it back up again in verses 8 and 9. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language, and even lying. In that, he gives us 12 evil practices that really pretty much define that pagan culture. And it doesn't mean that Jews didn't lie. It doesn't mean that they didn't, that they didn't have passions and that sort of thing. But the, the culture was different because the Jewish culture was informed by and guided by the Word of God. And they were aware of their sin that violated that Word. But in the pagan culture that they've come out, it is, a, it is a, an environment that is dark and filled with evil practices. The parallel is given in Ephesians, which we studied before we did the redemptive thread. It's been two years ago. You might remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Well, turn over there for just a second, if you could. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It describes what this was like. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of what? Disobedience. The sons of disobedience. And we have been called away from that. Well, it's very interesting because he uses that same phrase in Colossians, sons of disobedience. Under the power of the prince of the power of the air, who is that? Satan. Children, he goes on and talks about children of wrath not children of God. You see, sometimes we cannot grasp the darkness in which they lived. I know that we live in a society that seems to be falling apart, but at the same time, folks, we still live in a fairly lawful society that's changing somewhat. But you know what I'm saying. We, we live in a country where we have been blessed for most of its history for most of the people to live according to the Judeo-Christian standards that are in the Old and New Testament. Can you imagine living in a society where they did not have that? Can you imagine living in that kind of dark society? Capture it for a moment. Who is in charge? The prince of the power of the air. The dungeon keeper of darkness. Satan. He is dangerous. Think about it. Peter tells us he is like a roaring lion roaming around the countryside, seeking whom he may devour. He's dangerous. Jesus says that he was a what from the beginning? A murderer from the beginning. In this kind of environment that is dominated by the prince of darkness, he's powerful. He's the prince of the power of the air. First John tells us, and this is some alarming kind of phrase that he uses. He says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when we talk in this in our goals about embracing the world with Christ, we're not talking about embracing the darkness. What we're talking about is we're talking about embracing the globe. We're talking about being a global church. But when he talks about the world here, he's talking about a world that is subject to the power of the evil one who commands the hosts of the air, Ephesians tells us. Think about living in that kind of society where even some worshipped him. Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God. Why? Because our battle is not against 
flesh and blood, but against what powers and principalities. He who is over the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He who has spiritual forces of evil, where? In heavenly places, in high places. It's that kind of society. It's a kind of society where you could not trust anyone almost. He is deceptive. Jesus said also to, and I know this is what you were probably thinking, what Jesus said in the beginning, he was not only a murderer, but he was what? The father of lies. There's no truth in him, Jesus said. He disguises him as an, himself as an angel of light. And his servants also do the same thing. And what is his goal in this dungeon-like darkness of shadows at best? What is his goal? His goal is to keep people in the darkness till the end. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who himself is the image of God. The last thing that he wants them to see is a glimmer of the light. Living in that kind of society, this is what the Colossians had lived in. And then Epaphras brings them the gospel remarkably, to bring them into the light. Colossians encountered this satanic deception, we will see as we look at the book. You, look, you turn over to chapter 2, and you see that he talks about pagan philosophies, human philosophies that seek to take them captive, empty deception, the elemental things of the world, materialistic philosophers. They are here today, folks. Materialistic philosophers and scientists who say that you cannot trust anything that you do not see in the laboratory crucible. That's the only thing that you can trust, not believing in miracles, not believing in the power of God, not believing in the transcendent, not believing in the supernatural God. All we can trust is what we see. You see, this is the kind of world that they lived in. What does it mean when they worshiped angels, when they practiced severe asceticism a little bit later in chapter 2? It could have been a kind of Jewish cult. It might have been informed by Gnosticism. We'll talk about this more. Uh, Chris talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And so did Elias. This emerging Gnosticism that believed in dualism. The light is good and the darkness is bad. Well, that's true to some degree, but they also believe this, then that God could not come in human flesh. That's bad. Because he did. So you see, one of the heresies there is going to believe that, well, either Christ, who was the human flesh, was not God, or he was a deceiver, or to believe that he just appeared to be like a man. You see, these kind of heresies are going to confuse the people at Colossae if, they, if, they if they're not careful to follow the Word of God. The Gnostics, one thing that they emphasized was the light. Those Gnostics that were kind of quasi-Christians believed that Christ came to do what? To bring the light so that they might what? be enlightened. Their mind might be enlightened. It was all about the mind. It was not about the body. An emphasis on really strange sort of secretive knowledge that you have to have in order to be saved. A kind of mental legalism. All of these things the Colossians are going to be exposed to. And then what happens? The rescue comes. And where does a rescue come? From whom does a rescue come? Who is the rescuer? Before we jump in and say Jesus, look at the text. It says he. Well, what is the most immediate preceding person? Go back to verse number 12. Who's the rescuer? The father is the rescuer. 
Now he uses a son. But you see, this rescue from darkness into light originates with a father. He is the one. He is the one that has equipped them, in verse number 12, for the inheritance of light. The same he that is in verse 12, the father is the one who then rescues his people. And James tells us that he is the father of what? He's the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So it's the father here who is the rescuer. He is the one who originates. John 3.16. It is God who so loves the world that he sends his what? Only begotten son, who of course is God. So he is the rescuer, and the word rescue there means to draw to oneself. You see, this is his desire. Satan's desire is to keep everyone in darkness. God's desire is to draw him. The first thing is, and this is important, the first desire is for him to draw us to him. But there's a problem. He cannot draw us to him and to close proximity with him and have fellowship with us as long as there is what? Sin. Sin cannot come into the presence of the holiness of God in eternity without being destroyed. So there's a problem. He wants to draw us to him. The other way uh, rescue is translated from the Greek is to deliver from. So not just to draw to, but to deliver from. What does this sound like? It sounds like the uh, second book of the Bible. What's the second book of the Torah? Exodus. That's exactly what he did, didn't he? He delivered them from and drawing them. What was the purpose of the Exodus? It was so that his people might come out of Egypt and to do what? Worship him. Draw to me, he then delivered from, delivering from Egypt. That's what he does here with Christ. He delivers us out of that darkness so we can worship him. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on what? Earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Forgive us our debts or trespasses. I say trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And then what does he say? Deliver us from evil. Same word. Take us away from the darkness and draw us to you. 1 Corinthians 1.10 puts it this way. God raises the dead and we are, we are glad of that. And then, in so doing, he delivers. He delivers the same verb here. He delivers us from the peril of great, the great peril of death. So that's the rescue, and the Father has initiated it. So then we come to the second point. He has transferred us to the Son's kingdom, hmm. the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is the kingdom of what? In this context. The kingdom of, say it louder. Well, it's the kingdom of God, yeah. The kingdom of the Father, but what's the word I'm looking for? It's not the domain of darkness, but the, the kingdom of light. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of light. So we are in verse number 12 now. Those that have been set apart, we are the saints of light. We are called out of darkness, Ephesians 5. He says there, you were formerly of darkness. <laughs> that means you were produced by darkness. You were owned by darkness. You were defined by darkness. 
That was an attribute of your life. Your whole life was darkness. You were of darkness. But now, he says, you are light of the Lord. So you see what he's saying to the Ephesians? He's saying here, you're saints of the light. You're light of the Lord. This transfer means that we come into the beloved son's kingdom. We know this. In him was life, and that life was the what? Light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The light came into the darkness. The light came into the dark cosmos. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not what? It has not comprehended it in this way. But another word for comprehend is to consume, to destroy. Has not destroyed the light. You see, it is the sun's kingdom, and the light came into the world. He is the light of the world that has then done what? Well, Jesus said this. I am the light of the world. I dispel darkness. In John 8, it's his kingdom in which he says, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me, he follows me, she follows me, whoever follows me will not walk in what? In darkness. But they will have the light of life. He came to bring life and light. In this kingdom, he's the true light. First John, again, we go back to First John's letter, and he says, you know, even though the prince of the world is in control of the world, he then goes on to say that the darkness is passing away because the true light not will shine, not is going to shine. The darkness will pass away. It will recede. It will be dispelled because the true light is already shining. So this is the kingdom of light. Christ came in to the world as light to bring life, and to dispel darkness. And this, this light that he talks about here when he says true light, what does it mean? Well, does Satan pretend, as we said, to do something about light? Yeah, he's a torchbearer. He pretends to be the angel of light, but his light is impure, it's adulterated, and it is about to go out. You see, this is a superior light. It's the true light. The Gnostics in Colossae are going to claim that we've got the true light. You know, the Bible doesn't have all the answers, you see. Uh, the old te- by this time, the New Testament hasn't been written. Uh, but as it is written, the Gnostics in a century or two are going to say this. The Old Testament is not the valid word of God. Only the New Testament is. And they didn't take all of the New Testament. And they said, no, we've got further truth that goes beyond that that kind of esoteric, secretive knowledge. This is the kind of problem that the Colossians are going to be dealing with in its early stages. The light of the world is Jesus, and he fulfills the old covenant. And we believe everything from Genesis to not just Malachi, but from Matthew to what? Revelation. All 66 books today. That's the true light. The light exposes everything, doesn't it? We're glad that we have the light. That is wonderful. One of the issues is, though, the light exposes not just the bad, but also the good. In Ephesians 5, it says this, But all things become visible when the light is exposing them. For everything that becomes visible is light, under light. Therefore, walk. Be careful how you walk. Jesus put it this way about the exposure of the light. This is the verdict. This is in John 3, after he has spoken to Nicodemus, of course, about salvation. 
and about the lifting up of the serpent in the desert and the Son of Man being lifted up. And after John 3.16, and then he says, well, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, and men love light better than darkness. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? In the perversion of this world and the domination of the prince of power of the air, men love darkness better than light. And what they do is they don't come into the light because they're afraid that their deeds will be what? Exposed. But the person then that does the will of God, that is a person that attempts to do the righteous will of God, abides by the truth of his word, does what? They come into the light so that it might be seen that their deeds were produced by whom? By God. So one thing about the kingdom of light is it exposes evil, but it also exposes good. You are the light of the world. Don't let your light be hidden under a bushel. Let it light so people might be, see your good deeds so that they will do what? Praise your Father in heaven. We must choose in this kingdom of light, either light or darkness. What does Jesus say? The eye is the lamp of the body. Right? If your eyes are full of light, then your body is full of what? Light and goodness. If your, li- if your eyes are bad, your life is full of what? Darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, oh, how great is that darkness? So in this kingdom of light, we have a choice. We can have good eyes or bad eyes. We can have a good vision of accomplishing and working and abiding by the will of God, or we can have bad eyes that are set on the works of evil. The whole world was lost in darkness and sin. What's the next phrase? The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. Help me. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. And the hymn goes on to say, Ye dwellers in darkness with sin-blinded eyes. There's the God of the world blinding those unbelievers. The light of the world is Jesus. Go wash as his bidding. You know what that's referring to when he told the man with the mud on his eyes to go and wash his eyes in the fountain, and he would be able to what? See. Go wash at his bidding, and the light will arise. The light of the world is Jesus. We have a choice to make, whether to have good eyes or bad eyes, to be filled with darkness or to be filled with light. And then what happens? When we choose the light, two things happen. We are transformed and we are transferred. Once we were subject, we're transformed to the prince of the power of the air. Then we become subject to the prince of peace. Once we were sons of disobedience, then we become sons of God. Once we were of darkness, now we become of light. We do a permanent change of station. That's where the illustration comes in. We do a permanent change of station. A lot of things, everything changes. You know, you know, I like to do genealogies. And um, William Hiram Blair hmm, was from Northern Ireland. He was born in 1750. And he arrived in this country about 15, 20 years later or so. And he switched allegiances. You see, he lived in Great Britain and he switched allegiances and he fought then against the British and the colonial army. It was a change of identity. You know who William Hiram Blair just happens to be? He was Lloyd Elder's maternal third great-grandfather. 
So we see this. Immigrants that came to this country were part of another nation, another identity, and they came here and then fighting for freedom, they, their whole identity changed. Same thing happened with Betty Law's great-grandfathers. I won't, don't have time to go into those. You see, what happens is they transferred from one nation and identity to another, and that's what happens when we then move into the realm of the light. Our identity changes. We were sons of disobedience. Now we are in Christ. Our allegiance was to the world, and now we are citizens of heaven. Our mission, our goal is to do, as Aaliyah said last week, to please God. Our location currently at this moment for us is the body of Christ here on this hill. Some of you are members of Gambrel Street Baptist Church. The location for you is wherever the body of Christ is, where you're a member and you participate. The assignment is to be called out of darkness into His marvelous light and to proclaim His excellencies. The authority that you have, your rank. You're part of the priesthood of the believers, but you're also an ambassador for Christ. And your community and relationships are different now. You're a community of saints. This morning we shared the bread and the wine together. That means that we had communion together. And is that, that is the communion of the saints. The communion of the saints of what? What does he say in verse 12? Saints of what? Verse 12, saints of what? Saints of light. And we're held accountable. We must walk as children of the light. We must show our good deeds so that the Father will be glorified. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light to a world that is dark. And we are called by Ephesians 6 to bear the fruit of light, which is to do goodness and righteousness, to learn what pleases God, and not to do the unfruitful deeds of the evil one. In fact, to expose them. And then finally, the last point. We're set free by the Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. You know, uh, it is though we are enslaved in a dungeon and chained. Think about Paul and Silas. Remember where were they? In Philippi. In that dark, dank dungeon in Philippi with no hope of freedom. And they were doing what? Doing two things. They were singing. They were praising that's one P, and they were doing what else? They were praying, that's the other thing. And what happened? God broke their chains and set them free. This is the kind of thing we're talking about being set free by the Son. So Colossians goes on in uh, verse number previously, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 that we read. We have come to know the truth, the gospel of truth, according to the grace of God. And then we are filled with the knowledge of His will. We are filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we're enabled to walk. He equips us to walk worthy of the Lord. But that's not enough. You see, the Gnostics would promise that. The Gnostics would promise, well, if you just know the will of God, their God was different than the God of the universe. But if you just have all this knowledge and understanding, if you just have all this wisdom, you're going to be okay. If you have spiritual wisdom, you'll be fine. If you walk in a manner, in a certain way, that'll be good enough. But we know it's not. You see, what he's talking about to the Colossians is a result of the other thing that's happened. But we must not get the cart before the horse. You see, this freedom 
to receive the will of God and the knowledge of God and to grow close to God and to walk worthy and walk in a manner worthy of Him. This freedom to do so is because we have been equipped by the Father of lights. He has done something that changes us and enables us. We cannot do it until we have been equipped. And you know what it is. We've been what? Redeemed. This is more than intellectual freedom. It's more than being enlightened ethically. It is a moral, spiritual, physical, emotional, eternal freedom from what? Sin and death. And we have been redeemed. And you know what that means? We've been purchased. In the dark, dank dungeon of sin and death, enslaved and chained, the Colossians had been, and at one time we were too. What did it take? It take the, took the purchase. Believing in Jesus Christ, our following Christ, does not mean that there was a get-out-of-jail-free card. You with me? God didn't just say, okay, uh, get out of jail and you can pass, go, and collect your $200. No, something had to happen, and we know what it was. The debt had to be paid and forgiven. Ephesians 1 says, In Him we have redemption. In Him we have the payment. In Him we have the purchase that has been made. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins and transgressions. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. And the price of that redemption, we know, was, as we said this morning, not the slaying of goats and bulls and their blood, but it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ who then, after he was resurrected, it wasn't over. He paid the physical price in his blood. He was crucified on the cross. He was raised again, but his job was not yet finished. He then went outside Jerusalem, and they watched him ascend, and the angel standing next to the men said, Stop gawking. (laughs) Don't you know he's going to come back in the same way that he left? And where did he go? He went to be at the Father's side, at the right hand of God the Father, but he entered through then what? The Holy of Holies, the eternal Holy of Holies, and presented his sacrifice to the Father. And he continues to make eternal intercession for us. You see, the price was paid on this earth, but it was finished in heaven. It is permanent. The treasure is in heaven, and he guards it. We have been redeemed by the priceless and precious blood of Jesus Christ, Peter tells us. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with a precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what he's talking about here in Colossians 1.14. That redemption then did what? It gives us the inheritance in verse number 12. The inheritance, which we're told in Ephesians 1, is, was planned before the foundation of the world. That inheritance that Peter tells us is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it is reserved for us in heaven, and he is guarding it for us even now. And so then Paul can tell the Colossians, as he did in verse number 5, you have a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's not just that we have been set free to walk in the light here on this earth, but you have a redemption. You have been purchased from sin and death. 
and the treasure, the inheritance of the saints of light is reserved and waiting for you. Every time we do a funeral service, every time we do a memorial service, like Joyce's memorial service this afternoon that I was not able to tell you about until this afternoon, we celebrate the homegoing of a saint, a saint of light, who does what? Claims that inheritance that has been held for them ever since Christ entered into the Holy of Holies. Jonathan, you want to come lead us in a closing word? The message for all of us tonight is, and if you're watching, I think it's pretty clear. We live in a dark and dying world. We live in a world of dungeons and shadows where people are enslaved to sin and destined to death. But the light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light. It is shining for thee.